as you would prefer, I'd invite you to either open your Bibles with me or uh, open your bulletins with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to be reading a significant section of Hebrews chapter 9, though I will tell you I don't intend to preach on that particular passage in depth this morning because today is the fourth sermon in our biblical theology of place. And I'm looking at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and seeing there the promise of a place from God as it is revealed to us in his word. So far, we have looked at a couple of things in this series. In the first place, we looked at the creation of place and our emplacement in this world, in this place that God made for us. In the second sermon, we looked at the fact that due to sin, we were driven out of place. And so if you want to put it this way, the first sermon was our emplacement. The second sermon was our displacement. In the third sermon, last week when we were together, we considered the fact that almost immediately upon our being driven out, displaced from the place that God had put us, a promise was given to the people of God, and that promise was of a place, a place that God would give to his people. And we saw as we worked our way through scripture that in Christ, we can now describe ourselves as in one sense, being in place, in the place that God has prepared for us. But at the same time, we are still people with a promise waiting the place for the place that Jesus says, I will go and prepare a place for you. Over the next two weeks, then, what we're going to do is look at two prominent aspects of this promised place that we saw last week. This week, then, we'll get into the idea that this promised place is described as a holy place. And then next week, we'll look at together the, the idea that the promised place is also to be a place of rest. So a holy place this week, a place of rest next week. As I read for us now Hebrews uh, chapter 9, what we have an opportunity to see here is how the new covenant reflects back on the old covenant and helps us to understand the idea of place, in particular, the most holy place that God had created. And just to prepare you for reading this, and as a reminder, if you're unfamiliar with it, you have in the Old Testament the creation of first the tabernacle, a tent in which God met with his people, in particular with a high priest, and then you have the construction of the temple, which is the more permanent form of that. And you have various courts within that temple itself. You have, in general, then a holy place or the holy place. And then there is the most holy place, or what scripture calls the holy of holies. So when you listen to Hebrews chapter 9, you're going to hear him describing both aspects of that. You're going to hear him describing the first place and the second place, uh, the, the first holy place and then the second place, the holy of holies. So here then, this portion of the word of God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. 
or a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, that is the age when those things were taking place. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now I'm going to go to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Lord God, we thank you for this mighty word, for this great picture that is set before us of how you have redeemed us and how you have made a way so that we can be in your presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Spirit of God, you who inspired the writer of Hebrews to write these words, you who filled the temple with the glory of the triune God, you 
who equipped those artisans and craftsmen to be able to construct the tabernacle according to the instructions that they have received. We pray that you would be with us today, that you would illumine our hearts, you who dwell in us. We pray that you would help us to understand the word and love it and love what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we begin today, today thus. Jacob was on the run. Jacob had stolen the blessing that had rightly belonged to his brother Esau, and essentially the blessing that he had stolen from him was the blessing that Isaac, their father, had received from Abraham, the one that Abraham had received, and Jacob is now a fugitive from Esau's wrath, from Esau's hatred. He's on the run, and in this first night where he is on the run, he doesn't have a tent, he doesn't have a place to call his own, and so he lays down in a place that him, to him seems to be no place at all, and he doesn't have a pillow with him. All he's got is a rock on which he rests his head. When in what Derek Kidner calls a supreme display of grace unsought, the Lord, the God of Abraham, his, God, his grandfather, the God of Isaac, his father, the Lord comes to him and reiterates all of the promises that were given to Abraham and that were given to Isaac and says to Jacob, these now belong to you. I'm your God. I'm your God. And, and there's going to be descendants, descendants that come forth from you. And they and you will be my people. And I'm going to give you place. I'm going to give you a land. And there's one promise, there's one promise that Abraham, his grandfather, had not received, but that Isaac, his father, had gotten the first word of in Scripture. And then it begins amplification in the life of Jacob. And namely, the promise is this, Jacob, I will be with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, I will be with you. Now, if you had that dream... If you had that vision of the ladder coming down from heaven and the angels ascending and descending on that ladder, you might wake up and say what Jacob does on the front of your bulletin this morning, Genesis 28. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. What he thought of as no particular place, no sacred place, just a rock, is now seen to be, in fact, an awesome place. And he names the place Bethel, the house of God, and he describes it as the gate of heaven. The place where God interacts with man. In other words, Bethel was a holy place. A holy place. Moses was on the run. Well, at least Moses had been on the run from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he comes to a place where he lives in that place, as he describes it, a sojourner 
in a foreign land. And he is wor working his sheep, he's working his way across the land and through the wilderness, and he comes to Mount Horeb. And there he encounters at Horeb a burning bush. And he approaches it, and he hears these words, Exodus 3, verse 5, on the front of your bulletin. Then he said, that is God speaking from the burning bush, then he said, do not come near, take off your sandal, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And in that context, from that burning bush, Moses hears the same promises that have been given before. He hears the promises that to you and to your people, I will be their God, you will be my people, I'm preparing a land for you, I will deliver you out of this place and bring you into that place that I am preparing for you, and I will be with you. Joshua is uh, outside of Jericho at this point. He's come into the land of promise, and Joshua has an encounter different from, but similar to this that Moses had as well, where Joshua, Joshua is encountered by the commander of the army of the Lord. And what he hears from the commander is, Joshua, take the sandals off of your feet, for the place where you are standing on right now is holy ground. So you've got three people in three places, three different places, Bethel, and then Mount Horeb, and then on the edge of Jericho. Three different places, but all of the places are holy places or awesome places, as Jacob describes it. And we ask the question, this, this kind of obvious question to ask, what, what makes those places holy? Why are those particular places described as being holy? And the answer is not complicated. The answer is clear for us. It is the particular presence of God in those places addressing his people that makes those places to be holy places. Note, it is not the omnipresence of God that makes a place holy. Because if we were to think of the omnipresence of God, there's no place that's not that place, right? These are described as particularly holy places because God is uniquely and particularly present in those places, saying in particular to the people with whom he's interacting, I, I am going to give you a place. I am promising you my presence and you're experiencing it right now in this holy place where you're standing on a particular place and I'm in that place. You're, exp you're, you're experiencing now what I am promising to you, my presence. Now, this promise of the presence of God in a place takes an additional step in Exodus. So the, the, the covenant promise that was given to Abraham and to Isaac is that I will be your God and you will be my people, you and those who come after you. And then, as we've seen, 
To Isaac and Jacob, it took the amplification that said, and I will be with you. But in Exodus, it takes one more step as well with the idea of the promise from God, I will dwell in your midst. Now, now think of this for a moment. It is, it is one thing if I said to you, I'll be with you. It is another thing if I say to you, I will dwell in your midst. I am going to live with you in the same place that you live, in the same area where you live. I'm going to live there with you. But what we read in Exodus 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary, which is to say, let them make me a holy place that I may dwell in their midst. That's the intention of the Lord. And so then from Mount Sinai, which is where those words were spoken, itself a holy place, itself another name for Horeb, the Lord gives instruction in the creation of what I think we could call a mobile holy place. It's a mobile holy place. Holy place isn't going to be restricted to one particular place, one particular burning bush, but instead it's mobile. It's going to go with the people, and thus the instructions are given. The tabernacle, an ornate, beautifully, beautiful, carefully constructed, explicitly designed by God, structure given so that God can dwell in the midst of his people. And as the author of Hebrews notes for us, it's full of symbolism, and the, the tabernacle in its beauty, in its design, in its liturgy, what the priests did, how the furniture was laid out is all designed to show us how a holy, beautiful God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. So what's happening there, as God makes this expanded promise, is that fellowship with God is being restored, being re-given to the people of God. It's something that was lost. The communion with God in the place that he had made was lost. And now God is reestablishing that which had been lost now in a holy place. But as we move from a rock forward to uh, th this glorious tabernacle, that God has instructed them to create, we learn that it too, even this tabernacle and the design of it, it too is not permanent. Impermanent. It's temporary. It is a placeholder, if you'll pardon the pun, the tabernacle is. Deuteronomy 12, the passage that we read earlier, tells us that ultimately there will be a more specific place, a more permanent place, a holy land, and within that, a holy place. God will choose a particular place for his habitation, for his name to dwell. And so it becomes a place within place. If you want to think of it this way, think of it as a bullseye. A bullseye will be established, a place where God will put his name. It will focus all humanity on that space, and in particular, focus Israel on that place especially. So you can think of it geographically. You can think of it geographically, all of the land of the earth, and then Israel itself, and then Jerusalem, and then the mountain, 
and then the uh, temple on top of the mountain. But you can also think of it in terms of people. God's intention has been global from the beginning. Fill the earth was the intention. To Abraham, it was said, and you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So on the one hand, you've got all the peoples of the earth, and then you've got Israel in particular, and from Israel in particular, you've got the Levites in particular, and from the Levites in particular, you have the high priest in particular. It's a bullseye. All of it is drawing us together to one particular place, to one particular person who ministers in this most holy place. So thus, in approximately uh, 960 BC, Solomon builds the temple. And as the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle, we didn't read this passage, but it filled the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. So then the glory of the Lord fills this finished construction of the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon has built. It's not in Bethel, but in Jerusalem that the house of God is established. And Solomon says these words. Listen to him carefully. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Okay, he's just finished it. This is a place for you to dwell forever. Now remember, Solomon understood the limits of that statement. Just a few verses later, just to clarify this, he says in 1 Kings chapter 8, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So Solomon understands. Solomon understands that on the one hand, he can reflect on and think about the omnipresence of God. There's no structure that can be built that can contain omnipresence. Right? You can't stand outside of omnipresence to, to create something that can contain omnipresence, and Solomon gets that idea. But at the very same time, he recognizes that in fact God has provided for this, God has specified it, God has directed so that he constructs a place, a particular place, where God will make his dwelling place with his people, where God will make his presence known and be with his people. And on earth, at least, that house is that place. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of worship. It's a place of atonement, a place to plead for help in times of trouble, no matter what the trouble is. If the trouble is warfare, if the trouble is sin, if the trouble is pestilence, if the trouble is famine, go to that place and pray. Because here I am. Plead. Make your case in that place. And so then, for the remainder of the Old Testament, if you asked, if you went up to an Israelite and you asked them, where's the holy place? Where is it? They, they would be able to describe it for you. They would be able to say, it's there in Jerusalem on that mountain. It's a beautiful temple. You should go. You should see it. You should visit. Now, of course, that wasn't always the case, as we'll see in a few moments with, with destruction. But nevertheless, they had an idea of where it was or where at least it should be or where it will be once again. It's the high watermark of, if you will, Old Testament, Old Covenant 
place theology, this construction of the temple, or at least so it would seem. But when the writer of Hebrews reflects on this in Hebrews chapter 9, as glorious as the temple is, he sees within it a certain list of problems with this temple. The, the first of which is this, restricted access. When in, when, in, when in chapter 9 he's reflecting on this temple, he reflects of the fact that only the priest can go into the holy place as a whole, and only the high priest can go into the most holy place. So we have a place for the presence of God on earth, and yet it's restricted. Only a few people can go into that place. Secondly, as we reflect on the history of this, it's destroyed. It's destroyed. That, that's a big deal. Because Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, when he was praying and when he was giving thanks to God, said to God, I have made you a house in which you will dwell forever. And yet it was destroyed because of the sinfulness of the people. And that reveals to us that sin is actually the problem. The cyclical nature of the priestly ministry, the blood of the bulls and goats, all of this speaks of this place, even this more permanent place than the tabernacle, as being yet again a temporary place. And, and the basic message that is being shouted from the temporary place is this, you need a better place. You need a better place, you need better sacrifices, you need a better priesthood, a better ministry than what is going on in this place right now. So there you have the temple. And the temple reveals on the one hand our deepest need and desire. Our deepest need and desire is to be in communion with God, in fellowship with God, to be able to dwell with God. And at the same time, it exposes our deepest problem. And that is whenever we get into the presence of God, whenever we begin to approach the presence of God, we are undone. We're exposed. And it's not pretty when we are exposed. And so the temple is doing both of those things at the exact same time. And the lesson becomes that even in the best of places on this earth, there is no place where we can abide in God's presence. The temple itself was designed to show insufficiency, the temporary nature of this inadequacy because it was not the end. It looked like the end from one perspective. If you were looking at it from the perspective of Bethel and sometime later saw the temple, you would say, that's the end. Now, this is a rock that I'm laying on as a pillow. That's the end. But when you get there to that place that seems like it's the end, it's not the end. Last week, we asked the question, where's the promised place for the new covenant believer? This week, we then asked, where's, where's the holy place within the promised place for us. Where is that place? The answer is complex and wonderful. So where can we dwell with God? First, where's our holy place? Our holy place is in the heavens 
waiting for us. In the new heavens and the new earth, we began this, uh, when I set the, the kind of main places in scripture for this sermon, I wrote in there Revelation chapter 21, and we read it together because in Revelation 21, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with that. There's a place that God is preparing wherein we will dwell with him for eternity. And the writer of Hebrews says that for all of its glory, the temple was, in fact, and I, I wonder how this would have been received at the time, but that the temple was, in fact, a copy. A temp the temple was a copy. It's not that it was a fake. It's simply that the temple, for all of its glory, was, in fact, not the original. In fact, the original is the dwelling place of God in heaven, and the physical reproduction of the dwelling place of God in heaven on earth took place first in Eden, and then in the temple, which is a copy of Eden. And that's why, if you read the design of the temple and the nature of Eden and the beauty of Eden, you see the similarity of the materials that are there and of what takes place within it. It's a copy of a copy. That's what the temple is in and of itself. Your holy place is then, in fact, secured in heaven. And, and here's the wonder, as the writer of Hebrews looks at it. In one sense, we can say it's waiting for us. We are not there yet. And in another sense, we can say that, in fact, we are already there. And the reason we're already there is because Jesus is already there. And you are in Jesus. And therefore, Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem already. So answer number one, where's our holy place? It's in the new heavens and the new earth. Answer number two, it's in Jesus. Jesus had cleansed the temple. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do to show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They're looking at the temple, probably third iteration of the temple. Um, that was a, a, a construction campaign that Herod did. 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Where is your temple? Jesus, in fact, is the true temple, a holy place designated to be such in the way that all holy places have been designated to be holy places. That is to say, he's designated to be the holy place because of the particular presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So think about that then when you hear a verse from Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In the incarnation, Jesus took on place. He took on emplacement, and as such, he is full of deity. He is, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit. So in the way that the Spirit of God inhabited 
the tabernacle and then the temple. The Spirit of God inhabits Jesus, rests upon Jesus, Colossians 1.19. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and to continue the thought in Colossians, and you, and you have been filled in him. When his blood was shed, a new and living way was opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. That's what we read in the promise of forgiveness. Okay, through his flesh, through the brokenness of his flesh, a way was opened for us. And then, by his destroyed body and by the blood that was shed, by his perfect and once-for-all sacrifice, he has opened for us a way into the holy place in himself. And that's why Jesus says, again, to come back to it, to keep reminding us of the focus in John 15, abide in me. Abide, dwell in me, the holy place. Abide in my love, in, in Christ. It's the locative. It's a spiritual locative. Where is your dwelling place? Where is your holy place? It's in Christ. Third, our holy place is in the new heavens and the new earth. Our holy place is in Jesus. Our holy place is in the church. Our holy place is right here. We call this room a sanctuary. Latin sanctus, holy. A sanctuary. A holy place. That's what this is supposed to be. And I hope that you, with me, especially as we're reflecting on, a, on the significance of God giving place, appreciate and are thankful for the place that God has given to this church, for this place in particular. And that's good, and it's right that we should be thankful for a place in its very architecture that is supposed and designed to lift us up to God. That's great as long, as long as we remember a still greater reality. That in fact, we, strangers and aliens, but now fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, that we, with Christ being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where is our holy place? Our holy place is here, physically, yes, but our holy place is here physically with each other. That's where our holy place is. That's what helps us to see. That's what helps us to understand. That's where in the Spirit of God makes his abode. It's in the church as we are gathered together as the people of God. Or to say it in the words of Corinthians, you, and that you there is plural, you plural, y'all, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. And therefore, ask where the holy place is. Where's our holy place? The answer is, it's right here. It's where you and I are gathered together. Finally, it's in heaven. It's in Jesus. 
The holy place is in the church, and it's in you. It's in you. This is from 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The place where the Spirit takes up residency and dwells. That is a familiar passage to us. It's a familiar idea to us. But I saved it to the end deliberately today so that we could see how stunning it is. If you go from Abraham and then from Jacob and Bethel to the place wherein we are declared to be the temple and our bodies declared to be the temple, which the Spirit inhabits, is simply a stunning progression of the work of God to bring us back to himself, to bring us back into his presence so that we can dwell with him. In Christ, you have become holy place. Holy place, and for that matter, your mobile holy place, because as it turns out, you're mobile. You carry holy place from place to place. You are a bearer of holy place, so that when we look at you, we can say, how awesome is this place? Because the Spirit of God dwells there. Now, the implications and the applications of all of this are staggering. The nearness of God, the access to God, the cleansing of the conscience, an eternal redemption that has been secured for us, the calls, the holiness, the doxological calls that come out of this. Some of this I'm going to amplify next Sunday evening in a sermon, kind of continuing the reflection on this morning's thoughts. I'm going to leave you with only one implication of it today, just one. And I want to draw it from Deuteronomy chapter 12 with a cherry on top of it from Psalm 16. Deuteronomy 12 in verses 7 and 12 says this, when, when you go to the place within the land, the particular place where the Lord God chooses as his habitation, when you go to that place, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice. That's what the place of God is about. That's what the dwelling place of God is for. It is a place where you come together with others, with your manservant, with your maidservant, with your family, with your kids, with your parents, and you sit there and you rejoice in the presence of God. Psalm 16, 11 says it this way. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How sweet is that place? How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. Lord, it is easy for us to dwell in a home, in a house, in ourselves, an apartment, even in 
a sanctuary at our workplaces and not be cognizant of the fact that we're in a holy place where your presence is with us and your presence is near. Help us, each one of us, to realize your nearness and to rejoice in it, to be glad in it. We pray this in your name. Amen.